Radio Mano Papachango. This week's guest is uh, Jonathan Legg, L-E-G-G. You can uh, read about him at his blog, jonathanlegg.com. He's the host of a TV show called The Road Less Traveled. It's on uh, outside television. Google that shit. Or you can just go to outsidetelevision.com forward slash show forward slash road hyphen less hyphen traveled. But it's probably easier to just Google it, right? When you use Google as a verb, is it capitalized or not? I've, I've come up against that confusion several times. I never bothered to Google the question of how to write Google. But, um, you know, it's one of those modern-day conundrums. Hey, is the plural of conundrum conundra? I, I can't get away from these questions. Anyway, The Road Less Traveled is the name of his show, and that reminded me that we haven't done any poetry for a while. I feel like Mr. Rogers here doing poetry. Although most of you are probably too fucking young to even know who Mr. Rogers is. Now I'm that guy. I'm the guy who says, well, this was before your day, but back in my day, Google Mr. Rogers, capital G, that shit. Um, anyway, uh, The Road Not Taken, from which the show gets its name, uh, actually, there's yeah, it's a poem called The Road Not Taken. And the line, The Road Less Traveled, is in there. And um, it's by Robert Frost. It's one of the most famous American poems ever. Not actually my favorite, but it's got some, uh, some beauty to it. Uh, it's formally a very tight poem. Someone who studies this stuff more than I do would know what to call it. It's not a sonnet, but it's um, it's got a structure, uh, four stanzas, five lines in each stanza, and the rhyme scheme is A, B, A, A, B in each stanza. So, for example, in the first stanza, the last word of each line going down is would, both, stood, could, undergrowth. So there you have your A-B-A-A-B. Second stanza, fair, claim, where, there, same. Uh, third stanza, lay, black, day, way, back. And the last stanza, sigh, hence, I, by, difference. So there, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm sure the number of syllables in each line is also very formally uh, constricted. So, but I'm not going to count those out. You can do that yourself uh, if you're interested in that sort of thing. If you're the um, obsessive compulsive OCD type who gets into these things. Anyway, I'll read the poem for you. It's a, it's a nice poem and it's very much about travel. <clears throat> Again, it's Robert Frost. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood. And sorry I could not travel both and be one traveler. Long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to see where it bent in the undergrowth. 
then took the other as just as fair and having perhaps the better claim because it was grassy and wanted wear, though as for the passing there had Worley, sorry, though as for that the passing there had worn them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay in leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day. Yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. So this is, uh, on the most superficial level, it's uh, a poem about traveling, moving. On a slightly deeper level, it's about the decisions we make in life. And I would say on an even, on the sort of tertiary level, it's about how we frame the things that happen to us as narrative and so we take this formless, the formlessness of chance, and we impose structure on it, <clears throat> whether it's A, B, A, A, B, or whatever the structure is, we impose a structure on it, and we make it into a story, and that's how we remember it, because that's how the brain is structured. We we hold on to things as stories. That's why you can remember all the words to songs that you like. That's why rap... Uh, relates back to, you know, ancient uh, chanting of our hunter-gatherer ancestors. The way we remember things is that we put, we, we apply structure, a structure that comes out of the structure of our brain. It's an organic structure. And that's how we best remember things. That's how we best understand things. So our lives may not happen to us as stories, but that's certainly the way we experience them. And so he's, you know, he's walking here in the woods and the roads diverge. And he says, sorry, I could not travel both and be one traveler. I love that. And that is how we feel, too. It's like, man, I'd love to do both these things, but I can't do them both. First of all, it's impossible because there's only one me. But if I did do them both, then I would immediately become two different people because the integrity of my experience would have been split, would have changed. So he's talking about identity. He's talking about how experience creates identity. And he ends up taking the one that seems less traveled by. It's had fewer people walk down it. It's not as trampled. Though it's interesting because there is some ambiguity there. He says, though, as for that, the passing there had worn them really about the same. So he says, yeah, I took the one less traveled by, but actually they were pretty much worn down about the same. Hmm. I'm not sure what he means by that and why he felt it important to include that, but he did. He says it's the one less traveled by, but earlier... He says they were really worn about the same. So he he's not really sure it was less traveled by. And both that morning equally lay in leaves. No step had trodden black. So again, they're the same. 
Now, we all remember this poem. Everyone knows this poem as I took the road less traveled by. But notice how he's really going out of his way to make the point repeatedly that he doesn't really know that it's less traveled by. It seems worn about the same. And in any case, both were covered in leaves that no one had walked over. So whatever you decide, it's a unique decision for you because you've never made that decision before. And then he says, I kept the first for another day. And even as he says it, he knows that's bullshit. Just like we say, you know, I remember years ago I was in in uh, Thailand in the north. And I was doing a motorcycle trip and I'd wanted to go up and see these tribes and I thought, uh, well, yeah, I'll come back to Thailand. I'll do that some other time. But even as I said that to myself, I knew that was bullshit. I've been back to Thailand, but I never went back there. And even if you do go back to the place you were, it's changed. You've changed. You'll never be back there again. It's Every day is over and gone, and you can never go back. He says, yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. So look how much self-doubt there is in this poem. It's very interesting, right? Because it's a poem that's celebrated in the culture as, you know, hey, I did the thing that was different. I I set out on my own. I blazed my own trail. I took the path less traveled by. But this poem is full of ambiguity and self-doubt and second-guessing himself. I shall be telling this with a sigh somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Look at the structure of that last stanza. I shall be telling this with a sigh. He's imagining himself telling this story. That's what gives it its certainty. That's what makes it meaningful, because the first four stanzas are about his, or the, sorry, the first three stanzas are about his actual experience. He's recounting what really happened as an observer. He comes to this fork in the road. He tries to look down one as far as it goes into the underbrush. And he looks at the other one and he's like, yeah, I don't know which way I should go. And he, uh, he sees, well, one seems to be worn a little bit. Although, well, you can't really tell. They're actually worn about the same. And in any case, they're both buried in leaves. Um, well, okay, I'll go down this one. I'll come back and do that one another time. But yeah, I probably won't really. And then at the end, at the end, he's telling a story. At the end, he says, someday I'll tell this story and I'll say I took the road less traveled by, which is probably bullshit. I know it's bullshit. I'm here. They're both buried under leaves. I don't know what the fuck I'm doing, but I'll look back at this and I'll tell the story as if I did. I remember reading an interview with um, Paul Newman. I think it was in Playboy, the soon-to-be no-nudity Playboy. What's the world coming to? Anyway, it was in Playboy, and um, they they do great interviews. In fact, there's a couple of books where they collect the interviews. They had, for my money, the best interviews of really interesting people. But anyway, Paul Newman was talking about his career, and he said, you know, you look back on it and it seems like I had some great plan, <clears throat> but I didn't. I had no plan. I was just lucky as fuck. 
You know, I showed up at the right reading. Someone else happened to be there. We started chatting. That led to this other thing. Then this other thing happened. Then I met someone. So then I got cast in that movie who, with this guy who happened to be working with this other director and another thing. And then that got me into this other thing. And then there, that's how it happened. And and I remember being struck by his humility at the time because here he is at the time, you know, one of the greatest actors who's ever lived, one of the most successful actors who's ever lived, certainly. And he's saying, I have absolutely, I deserve absolutely no credit for this. I had no plan. It just happened. And that is the way things work, right? There's this self-fulfilling prophecy about life. There's a way in which we listen to the stories of the people we consider to be successful, and then we try to emulate them. But the fact is that in most cases, they were just fucking lucky, or they don't even consider themselves successful. So it's an illusion. I, I, I tweeted earlier today because I saw someone wrote something about how the truth eventually always comes out. And I thought, you know, that is so fucking dumb because you're not thinking it through. The truth that you hear about eventually came out. But that doesn't mean the truth always comes out. The truth that didn't come out, you don't know about. So you're not including it in your picture of reality, right? I mean, people who say like, oh, you know, conspiracies could never work because eventually they'd come out. Well, you're just thinking about the conspiracies that have come out. You're not thinking about the ones who haven't come out because by definition, you don't fucking know about them. You know, it's like saying, how come my bus always comes last? Well, because you get on your bus and you're not there for the ones who come after you, dumbass. So I think there's a lot of uh, that sort of blind spot thinking in our lives. And I think that Robert Frost may have been getting at that in this poem. I think that's missed on most readers. To be honest with you, uh, it's something I never thought about until until I started talking about it 10 minutes ago. But I think that's what he's getting at there. I think it's... He's getting at the fact that the way we live life is in the moment is without structure. But when we look back on it, when we tell the story with a sigh somewhere ages and ages hence, it's become a story and it's got structure. Even though that structure is not an original organic part of the experience, it's part of how we remember and recount the experience. Okay, that's my rant for this week. Uh, I want to read a couple of things. Let's see, Amazon, what do we got here? Oh my God, someone, I won't go on long with this, but there's some really nice ones. Someone bought a copy of Black Athena, the Afro-Asiatic Roots of Classical Civilization. In parentheses, the Fabrication of Ancient Greece, 1785 to 1985, Volume 1. That sounds good. Whoever bought that, if you enjoy it, let me know. I'd love to I'd love to get a summary of that. Someone else who is apparently in medical school bought the clinical manual and review of transesophageal echocardiography, uh, an up-and-coming cardiologist perhaps. That cost them 142 bucks for that book. Praise the Lord. We got 10 bucks out of it. All right, thank you. 10 10 out of 142 
came to the podcast. Someone else got a copy of Islam and the Future of Tolerance. Very nice. Hope that's good. Whoever you are that bought the garden hose, let me see, where is it? The Legacy Manufacturing L8344 Level Wine Retractable Garden Hose Reel, 60 foot long. Thank you. That was a 200 fucking dollar garden hose. And I got 15 bucks to the podcast. Sweet. I didn't know there were $200 garden hoses. May you sprinkle your lawn and wash your car in good health forever, sir or madam. And last but most, whoever bought that PlayStation 500 gigabyte console, Destiny, colon, the Taken King Limited Edition bundle for 420 smacks, 31 bucks came to the podcast. Thank you very much, and I hope you win every fucking game you play with that thing. So if you have an Amazon account and you'd like to contribute to the podcast without costing you anything, do what those people did. Order through the uh, affiliate link at chrisryanphd.com. You don't have to remember it every time. Just go through once. And when you get to the landing page on Amazon that you go through my affiliate link, just bookmark that. Use it when you go to Amazon and a proportion uh, between two and seven and a half percent of whatever you spend comes to the podcast. So, and it doesn't increase your price at all. It just uh, takes it out of Amazon's. Thank you. That's a great way to support the podcast. And the other great way to support the podcast is through Fund What You Love. Uh, the website started by Danny Osment, my sound engineer, who does all the sound engineering for this podcast completely free. Uh, as a donation of his time to the podcast, which is wonderful. If you have any paying gigs and you need a a sound engineer, please uh, hit up Danny. You can contact him through Fund What You Love or his uh, company website, which is Emerald... What the fuck is it? EmeraldCityPro.com Sorry, I had to step over there and look at my sign. Right now, there are 143 people supporting the podcast through uh, Fund What You Love, which is really cool. It's not uh, something that fluctuates. It just I can see how much is coming in and how to budget things for the podcast. Those of you who don't have the spare cash, do not sweat it. All right, I'm going to play you out with a song called Homesick by friend of the podcast, Joel Havea. The album's called You Make Me Believe. You can get it on iTunes at the iTunes store uh, or through his site. Joel Havea, H-A-V-E-A dot com. Homesick. Jonathan Legg, The Road Less Traveled By. Hope you enjoy this. Catch you next week.
Nunca he estado, pero siempre he, he tenido muchas ganas de conocer a Colombia porque los colombianos que he conocido ah. eran gente muy, muy dulce y abierta, mm -hmm. muy, muy buena gente. Hoy en día es bien seguro. Sí, y... creo que vamos con Quesilda, vamos a Colombia dentro de unos meses. Cuando acabo este libro, vamos o oh, vamos a Asia, a Tailandia, Laos, eh, Cambodia, Indonesia que ya conocemos, o vamos a Colombia, que nunca... Colombia, Ecuador, tal vez. Y hay una cosa que es un poco relevante de, de tu trabajo ya, eh, allá. Hay este, con, convenciones... Um, congresos. Congresos donde un extranjero viene para casarse a, a una Colombia. Colombiana. Ah, sí, sí. Es un... Grande, big banquet halls yeah. full of like, you know, tables. Have you seen this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. like the, the foreign uh, yeah. wife thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I saw an episode of, uh, I don't know if it was Vice or... Uh, Lucy, what's her name? Uh, yeah, Lucy Liu. Lucy yeah, Liu. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, I've always wanted to cover that story. Should we relocate? Possibly. Jonathan and I were sitting uh, at a bench on the uh, boardwalk at Venice. People saw the microphones and came over and started making a lot of fucking noise right next to us. I don't know if they were going to hit us up for money or what. But at that point, we paused and uh, we moved to another part of the beach where nobody was around and picked it up from there. Uh, Jonathan Legg. Jonathan Legg. All right. And what's the name of the show? Road Less Traveled. Like the Robert Frost. Yeah, I'm trying to see if I can remember the lines. What, what is, how's it begin? It's something about him and his horse going through the woods, the yellow wood on a snowy evening. I should know this. You should. You yeah. should <laughs> I should have this man. memorized. And I do poetry sometimes on this podcast. That's a, uh, okay, so I did, a, I did a poem once in uh, London with a guy I was following, I think his last name was Salazar. He's known as the Naked Poet. And, uh, So I said, hey, look, I'll shadow you and we'll write a poem together. His stuff was really erotic, so I wrote something semi-erotic. And, and then I know he hosted naked poetry nights, but he ended up taking me to a regular poetry night, 30 people there, and then the host came on at the end and said, uh, we just want to let you know two guys are taking off their clothes and reading poetry, so if anybody wants to leave. And uh, took off my clothes, 
read this poem in front of everybody and you find that there's this awkward moment as you drop the clothes but once you're into the poem you're thinking about your beats making eye contact reading it smoothly you're in performance mode but then the second you end it's that awkward uh you know pull the underwear up over your ankles as you're getting off stage pulling the underwear up is actually one of the most awkward moments uh, in general whether we're talking sex or poetry. <laughs> I was going to say, sort of a walk, a walk of shame uh, through the audience. That's, do you remember the poem you read? It was your original work. It was an original poem. Uh, and did you have like a, you know, a, a passion for the arts, Woody? <laughs> I didn't, but I would have embraced it if I had. <laughs> yeah, well, it's you know, always good to, to do know, that. You get a roll with it. Yeah. That's well. That's good. That, yeah. That's ballsy to take your clothes off at a poetry reading. That's cool. It felt I, good. It felt empowering. That. Yeah. Every time taking your clothes off is sort of like jumping in the ocean. You're kind of loath to do it occasionally, but and it you, makes your dick shrivel. <laughs> it makes your dick shrivel. I can do better. <laughs> You've seen that episode of Seinfeld where George is in the pool and, oh, yeah. and the water's cold, and then the woman walks in on him when he's changing, and he's like. But Jerry, she thinks she thinks that's like me. She right. thinks it is like that's not me. Right. It was it was shrinkage. We recently <laughs> uh, we finished up this finished episode uh, where you know we harped on the theme in Finland about how the Finns are the most comfortable people in the world with silence, mm. and often they'll sit in sauna and, and just be silent. And uh, usually we end our episodes with some big razzmatazz, slam bam. But this one we we have all this buildup where like we're going with the Mustang group to this special spot it's gonna be the perfect place to end the episode and I try to high energy with this group of Mustang aficionados we're all rolling together through Helsinki we get to this old World War II battleship that's been fitted with a sauna in it and then boom we cut to the scene of us all sitting in the sauna in complete silence for a full minute as the credits roll and uh, we've got newscasters and stuff there uh, you know getting a little PR work on the side and after we finished, I was like, fuck it, I'm going to jump off the side of the thing into the bay, naked, ice cold. And I just, I remember coming up back onto the ship, up the, the, the ladder onto the ship, and one of the newscasters had come around with her camera to receive me. I don't think she'd realized I was naked. And, uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> I probably wasn't representing myself as best as possible because that, <laughs> that Scandinavian water is cold, let me tell you. Yeah. But the look, the look <laughs> on her good. face as I rose up and, you know, yeah. the full thing came into view was, was a priceless moment. Uh, do you know uh, Wim Hof? You ever heard of him? I have not. He's a Dutch dude who uh, has, he's got, I don't know how many Guinness records. Uh, and the thing he is sort of best known for is um, being able to withstand temperatures that would kill most people. Like he swims between icebergs, you know, for half an hour. He has a way of regulating his body temperature and um, he teaches people how to do it. It'd be an interesting episode for your show, actually. It would be. Um, he's a very interesting cat. He uh, climbed Mount Everest uh, barefoot, I believe. Holy cannoli. In a pair of shorts. He he! Cli- he's like climbed all these mountains. He's swum in Antarctica. He's the real and, life ice man. Yeah, he's really something, and he's still at it. He's in his fifties probably, and um, yeah, there are a couple YouTube videos you can see, and he's been you know on Nat Geo or I don't know what it, you know he's been around, um, but he's he's a cool guy too. Apparently, a friend of mine lives in Amsterdam and knows him and says he's a 
really special, interesting man. And uh, the way it all started, if I remember correctly, was that his wife died young and just fucking destroyed him. And the way he dealt with the grief was by distracting himself with the, you know... Punishing like, cold. Yeah, yeah. And then he, he developed these breathing techniques, and I guess it's a circulatory kind of thing and building up certain energy in the body or whatever. And so he teaches people to do it, and then they climb this mountain in shorts and sandals, you know, and, like, withstand below freezing temperatures and no clothes for eight or ten hours or whatever it is to get up the mountain. Sounds like a lesson I'd like to take. Yeah, yeah. There's something to be cool said guy. for the whole exposing yourself to extreme cold. I know Rogan's really into that now. I see his posts. I've done that. Have you done that, the, the cryogenic chamber? I haven't done the chamber. I've jumped into extremely cold water and, and yeah. done a lap or two. Yeah, well, the in my experience, the cryogenic chamber is... Uh, Hype. Hype. <laughs> yeah, I, I was trying to look up, <laughs> trying to look for a, a less judgmental way of saying it, but that's pretty accurate. Yeah, I mean, it's you know, it's an LA thing. It's right. taking something which is a you know, like uh, whatever, a high fiber diet, and turning it into wheatgrass and kale shakes. You know, it's in charging thirteen bucks that's for it. The LA specialty, exactly. So it, you know, you spend sixty bucks and you're in you know 200 below zero or whatever it is for three minutes but i mean i stood in there in the first minute i wasn't even cold it's just on your skin right and you know i've got a healthy layer of uh, polar bear fat here and it's like yeah it's cold but i'm not cold i'm not shivering i'm fine you know and it's only two and a half three minutes and then you come out and it's like okay that was really fucking cold and you but you've got like something over your your not, mouth and nose so you're not breathing it you've got something over your ears you got these socks that come up to your knees and like yeah whatever my skin's cold but yeah you jump into a stream in oregon and sure. you get a much deeper feeling that lasts all day long you know you get that great like wow i feel so alive feeling right you know? right your brain dumps all of this yeah. serotonin yeah because it's water so the cold goes into your core mm -hmm. whereas this is just air so it, it's no big deal it sort of stays on the surface right right you know who's the master of this are these guys who work at the uh, south pole station down in antarctica apparently uh, i've read some stories about how they, they rig the thermostat in their sauna so that they can get the temperature up to 150 degrees. They'll sit in that for just a minute and then they'll run out when it's 150 below zero and then they become part of what's known as the 300 club. Oh, because <laughs> it's 150 to 150. Yeah. It's a 300 degree range. Right. Yeah, I just, uh, two days ago, I, I was in Joshua Tree um, and I met this guy who had been in Antarctica. He'd worked down there strange place yeah yeah we talked about the Werner Herzog film great have you seen that fantastic what's it called Encounters at the End it, of the World right beautiful film he did that just him and, and uh, one cameraman and he did all the sound yeah and it was and, and all that underground stuff I mean underwater stuff was his buddy who who was uh, a musician you remember he was a musician in the 70s and 80s, quite well known, like a jazz, rock, fusion. I can't remember his name, but he gave up music and became an underwater photographer and specializing in under ice photography, 
which That's is like the most cool. dangerous, crazy, you know, kind to do. Right. And he's very good at it. I can't remember his name right now, but anyone like 50 or over would have heard of this guy because I remember um, when Herzog mentioned it, it's like, oh, yeah, I know that. I know that name. Um, I can't remember it. Anyway. I love that Herzog technique he has when he interviews people occasionally where he'll say, uh, yeah, so tell me about your project. What are you doing down here in the Amazon? You know, and the guy's like, yeah, we, you know, I spent all this money. We built this big balloon. Oh, that's a great movie. Right. And then, uh, you know, the guy gives his spiel, and then Herzog keeps the camera on the guy and doesn't say anything. (laughs) Yeah. And seconds pass by, and then then the subject feels this compulsion to fill in the void with, and what, what he blurts out is often real truth. Like, yeah, we built this thing in the jungle, and it's going to be this and that. Tick, tick, tick. Of course, if it doesn't work out, my wife will leave me, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, and then boom, that's it. That's the real gem yeah. that he squeezed out of them with his technique. So I haven't introduced you. Oh, yeah. We've just been, we've just jumped in and been <laughs> swimming here for 10 minutes and 47 seconds. Uh, you are Jonathan Legg, and Correct. you are the host of The Road Less Traveled. Is that right? That's the path, it. The Path Less Traveled. The Road Less Traveled. Road Less Traveled. Which is, uh, what is it? It's a travel show, an adventure show. You, you're like, you're participating in crazy shit, right? That's, That's it. the it's, idea. It's hands on, off the beaten path travel. So nothing, no Taj Mahal. Uh, no Coliseum. We're looking for things that tourists usually haven't done and things that I can get my hands dirty with. So unique sports. Like, Let's get the host killed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've come close a few times. Really? How many seasons have you done? We're on the fourth right now. Really? Yeah. Wow. The two times that jumped to my mind where I was probably in the greatest peril, once was in Vietnam. Uh, we'd eaten a cobra in Hanoi. And, of course, I wanted to assure the viewers that we weren't just killing a wild cobra. They actually farm them. There's whole villages dedicated to growing cobras. Uh, so we found one of these villages, walked up and down the streets. Everybody was a little secretive, wasn't sure about the cameras. One place allowed us in. We negotiated a price. I think we gave them, like, $150 to come in. They walk us into this room that has uh, all these little tiny trap doors on the floor. Uh, no bigger than a square foot, covered with them on this cement floor. And then this guy with a pole quickly whoop, 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 opens up three doors and snakes everywhere. And then these guys are grabbing these snakes and, and kind of thrusting them at me, like, just take it, take it. And I was, whoa, whoa, whoa. I mean, this isn't a rattlesnake. A cobra bite will kill you in 15 minutes. Absolutely no safety standards whatsoever. They're not, are they spitting cobras? Uh, I don't believe so. No, those just are your, Indian, I think. Your standard cobra. That are, like, spit in your eyes? That... Oh, no, man. no, thankfully not. That would up the that ante. Was, yeah. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it was completely unrecommendable. And then we get to the end, and, and I say, okay, you know, I think we're, we're about wrapped up here. Um, can I just get one quick shot? I've heard all you guys have anti-venom on hand, because occasionally somebody gets bit. Uh, can I get a quick shot of that, and I think we're good? And they say, oh, you want to see the anti-venom, huh? Mm, $200. What? A hundred bucks to get in, two hundred to see the end of it. And then it it occurs to me, maybe they wanted me to get bit because I've got 15 minutes to negotiate a price point to get that end of it. Wow. Yeah, Yeah. Vietnam. I got to tell you, I didn't like Vietnam. No? I spent, my wife and I spent three months there. And I felt, I mean, the story you just told really brings it back because I felt like the whole fucking thing was about getting money out of me. 
right. everything was a scam or, a, you know, everything was a deal. And, and the deal that, I mean, I remember we stayed in this place in Hoi An for like two weeks. And when we, it was this nice hotel and it was like five bucks a night or something. Yeah. And then when we went to check out, no, suddenly it's 25 bucks a night. And like, you know, come on, you, you know, you don't change the price, right, you know, right. it, deals, it, deals. it was like Morocco, same thing in Morocco. Everything's a fucking fight. I, I didn't. And also the Vietnamese are, are very racist. And my wife is uh, of Indian. She's from her family's from India. And when she's in the sun, she gets really dark. So everybody thought she was a local hooker. Oh, right. Yeah, that is a thing. It, it even warns you in the guidebooks that if you're with a. If you're a Caucasian or a black man with an Asian girlfriend, people will say things to her in Vietnamese, uh, you know, slandering her. Right. Well, I didn't, I mean, they could say whatever they wanted. She didn't understand it. But like three times she was physically assaulted. Wow. Like people hit her, you know. Whoa. Yeah. Fucking. So that'll, that'll take the fun out of it. Fun out of it. Then we got to Laos and it was like, everyone was smiling and happy. It was wonderful. Yeah, Laos great. I love Laos. Anyway, so so did you eat the cobra then? Did you I gr- did, yeah. It's amazing how many dishes came out of this one cobra. <laughs> Plus, you, you, you swallow the beating heart. Now, there's a manly thing Really? You and, did that? Yeah, and you drink the blood what? and the bile mixed with vodka. Oh, come on now. Yeah. Swallowed a beating heart? Swallowed a beating heart of a cobra. If that doesn't make you stand up and beat your chest, nothing will. <sighs> I don't know. <laughs> it sounds to me very similar to you know, sucking a throbbing dick. I'm not sure how manly. I mean, nothing against my gay listeners. You're manly. In fact, some of the most manly people are gay. But, uh, yeah, okay, swallowing a beating heart. It's still beating. It was still beating as I swallowed it. That's pretty intense, What are you going to do? You got to do it. You find yourself in a lot of situations where it's like, okay, I'm here. Am I going to do yeah. it or not going to do it? I remember being in... In uh, Holland, we were covering this unique sport called Fjöljepin, which started with, um, you know, bird hunters and foragers who uh, had to cross the canals, and there's only so many bridges, so they'd carry a pole along with them so they could leap over the canals. And then it's evolved now into a sport where you're on this little mini pier, and there's a carbon fiber pole wedged in a canal, kind of leaned towards you, propped up on something, and you run down that pier as fast as you can, <laughs> leap up onto the pole. Your momentum now is making that pole tip over to the other side of the canal, but you're not done yet. If you if you don't start climbing, you could potentially hit the edge oh, you have and to break climb your bones. Up so the pole as, as it's going. moving, you start climbing it like a monkey. And as you see the ground approaching, you've now got to swing one of your legs over to the side so you don't hit the get the impact of it stopping suddenly on the bank. So you got to swing one of your legs over and get ready to dismount as soon as it hits the bank on the other side. Holy shit. And man. as I was lined up to do the pro run, you know, we had a lot of warm-up, a lot of exercises. And as I was lined up to do the pro run, they were like, Jonathan, got to let you know, if you start climbing and you don't think you're going to clear it, you've got to realize in that split second you have to jump off in the canal. If you don't, you're going to definitely break your leg or your ribs. <laughs> and the, the producer seeing his asset in jeopardy says look man you don't have to do this we can cheat the shot it's fine you don't have to do this and i was like no man i've got to do it and you did it and i did it and i got away with it you made it yeah so it sounds like uh like the show is sort of like fear factor meets uh tony bourdain or something you know yeah there's a little anthony bourdain there's a little bit of the bear grills in it yeah each episode sort of takes its own life you know 
we did that in Vietnam. In London, we did something completely different where I looked at the, all the new niches, the subcultures there, like grime rappers. You've got cyber goth. Uh, we did the crusty upper lip thing and had, had a tea with, with a, what's that, that most famous brand out of London? Um, Twinings? Twinings, yeah. I had tea with Stephen Twining. Oh really? In a in a suit from Henry Poole and crusty I, upper lip. What the fuck is that? <laughs> you know that's like the old money. Uh, I went to a language coach to to ask how I could speak like uh, these guys, and they said you got to pretend like there's a a piece of hard candy in your mouth. Mm. And I said, well, give me a like a phrase that can bring me back to that accent. He said, uh, here's one. I'd like to have a bath with Roger. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to be Rogered in the bath by Roger. Yes, well, bloody well, hell. Um, but that's the very upper, that's the BBC. Oh, yeah. That's the, yeah. It's, did you just hear a beep? I did. Oh, okay. Well, then that means it wasn't the machine. Um, uh, what the fuck are we talking about? Crusty upper lip. I thought that was a sex thing. I thought that was in reference to, you know. No, but we did cover sex. Uh, we were looking for more material. I met a guy who publishes the fetish and burlesque maps of London. Uh, and it's amazing how much fetish stuff is going on, often in the nicest neighborhood. Beautiful white house, looks like your perfect quintessential sure. proper manner. That's, that and shit's in for the, rich people, man. In the basement, there's all kinds of kinky stuff going yeah. on. Yeah. I should describe where we're sitting, actually. We are uh, on the beach in Venice, California, or is it Marina del Rey? We're right on the border. We're just a, a tick into Marina. And it's night. And we're uh, looking out over the, the beach here. It's, uh, it's a lovely night. It was a hot as fuck day in Los Angeles, so it's nice right now. And we uh, set up earlier at a picnic table up closer to the boardwalk in Venice, and like within 15 seconds, a bunch of people came and sat right next to us. That's how it works. Yeah, I think they were looking for a payoff. <laughs> that happens here in L.A. Yeah, yeah. Well, I told you the story. I was doing an interview, and uh, the belief blowers start. Apparently, Mexican uh, lawn crews, when they see a film truck or any kind of U-Haul parked in a nice neighborhood, they know somebody's filming, and they'll start making noise. I don't blame them. What the fuck? They're, yeah. they're Mexican dudes. They've worked their ass off to get here. Um, what the fuck are we talking about? Europe. Oh, traveling. And you, risk. That's what it was. Like right. crazy shit. Now, the thing is, crazy shit happens when you're traveling anyway. This is right. And people have heard me tell stories. I got stung by a scorpion in Guatemala on top of a temple while I was tripping. You know, that was <laughs> crazy. Shit. I mean, I've had, you know, all sorts of life-threatening things. A guy shot at me on the 4th of July in Alaska. A guy fucking shot at me. It was shot at a group of people that I was in, and I happened to be walking in the front of the group, and I saw the dirt kick up on the trail in front of us, and I heard the pops, but it was the 4th of July, so everybody's like, oh, there are pops everywhere. Right, right. right. But I was the only one who saw the dirt kick up. Perfect time to shoot somebody. Yeah. And I look over, and there's this dude with a pistol. It was a fucking Derringer. You know, who, who shoots a Derringer in Alaska? going to kill somebody with style. <laughs> well, kill somebody by accident. You can't aim those fucking things. Um, yeah, so when you're out actually looking for uh, exciting, risky-seeming footage, uh, on, on one level, your risk level must go up, even though you're, you've got people looking out for you. How big right. is the team that you travel with? 
It's usually uh, two or three people. We keep it really oh, lean. Oh, really? That's Because that's you find lean. the bigger the crew you have, the more it affects the atmosphere you're in. Right. Uh, I mean, it's going to happen one way or another as soon as there's right. a camera and a, and a host. Things change a little bit, but I'd like them to change as minimally as possible. Yeah. I, one of the things I'd like to think on the show is that most of what I do, I'd say 90% of what I do, any traveler could do if they had the, the moxie. Right. Uh, and we always leave a and little... the budget. Yeah, in the budget. <laughs> in the budget. But there's, there's true adventure everywhere. Yeah. yeah and we, I mean, also, we also leave a little slack in every schedule for things to happen. And some of our best stuff, as you said, has just happened because we were open to it. Right. Um, and we, we had the time to explore it. So how, how produced are the episodes before you go out? I mean, you go like, we're going to Kazakhstan, we're going to this place, we're working with these people, and it's like really produced, or you get there and sort of work it out? It depends on the destination. Like, we just came back from Ireland, and, and I already knew that in Ireland I wanted to look at the distilleries and pose the question of, okay, Ireland invented whiskey, they had the lion's share of the whiskey market, but then they lost it to Scotland. What right. happened? Did they deserve to lose it? Huh. What's whiskey like there nowadays? And so that would huh. be the backbone of our episode. And then That's we go an interesting and... question, actually. Right. I mean, Jameson's is still a great whiskey, but you're right. I mean, compared to Scotland, there must be then, 50 great scotches that come out of right. there. Right. It turns out Irish whiskey is fantastic. I became a real believer. Um, and how they lost the crown. They, they, they're sort of like the rocky Balboa of beverages. They, they got hit with so many blows. Mm. Uh, you had uh, the, of course, the, the big um, potato famine, yeah. which was huge. They lost a leasely quarter of their population. And that's how America got most of our Irish immigrants. Uh, they had uh, Father Murphy with this uh, abstinence pledge where school children were actually signing papers saying they were never going to drink. And uh, people still adhere to this, the, the teetotalers. Mm. Um, and then the big one, though, the, the killer blow, the Clubber Lang, was uh, American Prohibition. Not so much that they lost the market, that was big, but bootleggers in America were selling their moonshine under the title of Irish whiskey. Uh. So for 13 years, any American who came of drinking age in those 13 years, their first taste of Irish whiskey was some gut Nasty rot. shit, yeah. And they said, fuck, this is terrible. Uh, Meanwhile, you had GIs returning from England who brought scotch with them, and scotch then ascended to the throne, so to speak. Interesting. So, so, the, so the, uh, the technique, the brewing techniques are similar, or the distilling techniques? Right. American, American whiskey is, uh, generally speaking, uh, single distilled and made of corn. Right. Uh, scotch is double distilled and usually barley-based. Occasionally you get blends with corn. And Irish is triple distilled. Uh, they do have a unique thing there where they have something called pot still and they mix malted and unmalted barley. And the historic reason for that is the English imposed a tax on the, hmm. the malted stuff. So they started mixing some unmalted so they'd pay less tax. And it ended up giving the whiskey sort of a creamy, smoother taste, hmm. which uh, is fantastic. I highly recommend it. If, if nobody out there listening has tried uh, an Irish pot still, you, you got to get your lips on one. <laughs> you get your lips on one. That's a good expression. Yeah, you know, whiskey is one of those things uh, in life that I really, I do wish that I could appreciate, but I just can't. I, so far, maybe, maybe I'll age into it at some point. But you know, I've, 
I've tasted the, you know, single malt this, single malt that, all this expensive stuff. And to me, it all just tastes like gasoline. I can't get to the flavor. I can't find the flavor in there. I can smell it. Right. But once it's in my mouth, it's all just fumes and, and acid. I felt the same way. I, I, I didn't really break through until this trip. Oh, really? Yeah. Sincerely, this was the breakthrough moment where I became a whiskey believer. It's like cigars. Can you appreciate a cigar? No. Yeah, I just puke when I'm around a cigar. Yeah, I, I tend yeah. to think of it as something you just put in your mouth for, for status. Put your lips on one of these. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I saw this film about tobacco. I think it was called Tobacco Shop a long time ago. It was like, took place in Brooklyn at this little shop, and Harvey Keitel was in it, I think. And Anyway, there was a tobacco shop right next to where I work, so I went down there, and, and I talked to the guy, and he took me in the humidor and told me about all this, you know, Dominican versus Cuban, and yeah, the leaf, and then, and it was all really interesting, and then I bought this nice cigar, and I went home, and it was late afternoon, and the sun was coming in, slanting through the window, and I lit up this cigar, and I puffed it, and the room filled with smoke, and it was all great, and then 10 minutes later, I was puking. It's yeah. like, no. Maybe you in, inhaled some of it. I probably did, yeah. You gotta be like Clinton. <laughs> I'm not like Clinton. <laughs> I am not. I inhale that shit. If I put my lips on it, I'm inhaling it. I hear you. Um, but uh, so, so how did this whole thing start? How do you get the job that millions of dudes would love to have? You get paid to travel, do fun shit, and be on TV. How, the fu- how does that happen? Well, that's a good question. I mean, to make it in L.A., you need some talent need some connections and you also need some luck yeah uh i'd like to say i'd like to believe (laughs) that uh i got it because i was always fairly true to my passions in life i i uh i had a a transformational experience in high school going from a shy kid to an outgoing kid through theater so i naturally had Uh this love for performance because it, it really brought me out of my shell um where'd you grow up illinois peoria illinois Ah, okay uh, and I went, I remember in college having a little bit of crisis what to do with my life, and I went to my counselor, and uh, she said, what do you really want to do? And I said, I, I think I want to really go to L.A. and try to make it happen there. She, <laughs> she said, no, no, it's super unrealistic. It's yeah. not what you think. And yeah. So she really poo-pooed the idea, which seems terrible, but if I had come, I'd just been another kid coming off the bus from Illinois with no life experience. Yeah. Instead, she said, what else do you want to do? And I said, well, I really love traveling. So she kind of guided me into a career which started off as teaching English, where I went around the world and and taught English, went to South America, went to Italy, went to Africa. And uh, at a certain point, I uh, started kind of, a friend brought me into a modeling agency. I did a little bit of that work. And then I slid into acting, which was more fulfilling. And I started getting checks thought, hey, I can do this. Was that in L.A. or in Italy? Or that was in New York, actually. Uh-huh. Uh, and then I found myself at this crossroads of life where, you know, one of those moments where you suddenly realize you can go anywhere and do anything. Maybe you just broke up with your girlfriend. You're not mm. super keen on your work. Right. So I thought, yeah, I've always wanted to live in Asia. Let me see if I can go there and if, float my boat acting. Uh, not because I was thinking it would launch my career, but I just thought it'd be a fun thing to do as I travel around Asia. So I get to Tokyo, and in Tokyo, if you've got the right look they want, 
and uh, the right style, you'll get a lot of work. You'll hit a glass ceiling, but you'll get a lot of work. So As an actor? As an actor. In, like, commercials and stuff? Or? Commercials. They were really hot on reenactment dramas, like the, the true story of the guy that survived three plane crashes in one day. And, you know, they, and they interview <laughs> the guy, and then they cut back to you uh, sitting in Narita Airplane Museum uh, behind the plane. <laughs> really? With terrible acting, really overselling it. <laughs> Uh, and, uh, you know, what I got from that, though, was a heap of camera experience. Yeah. Um, when I came to L.A., I really had to tone it down. I was so huge because huge gets you the job in Japan. In L.A., it's small but real. Right. But when I met the right guy, just, just lucky, I met the right guy who was wanting to produce the show, but he needed the real deal. He needed a guy who was comfortable in front of the camera. Right. And a guy who was well-traveled. Right. And I said, I'm your boy. And so uh, I remember we'd, we'd had a conversation. I found out that he was at the moment in Sacramento. I was in L.A. And uh, so I said, I have to take this bull by the horns. So I said, wait, wait. We get to the end of the conversation on the phone. I said, you're in Sacramento, huh? I said, well, next week, a buddy of mine in San Francisco, he's got a bunch of paragliding clients, too many for him to handle. So I'm going to come up and help him. Now, there's, a, there's the subtext there that I'm trying to communicate, like, I'm an adventurous yeah. fucking dude. I do right. paragliding. We could do this on the show. Right. Uh, subtly. And I was like, you know, I'll be in San Francisco. You're going to be in Sacramento. Let's find some place in the middle and uh, have a talk. So I looked for the most interesting place in the middle, which happened to be the Jelly Belly Bean Factory. It has a little cafe. And from the minute we stepped in there, I was the travel show host. You know, the guy would walk by us in the coat and the hat and be, excuse me. How many beans do you make here a day? Five million. <laughs> that is phenomenal. You know, That's I was just in character the whole time. <laughs> right. And uh, we had one conversation, and he bought me a ticket to India where we shot the whole first season. I guess it was a gamble for me uh, because I didn't know was this guy legit. What was the whole deal? He was new. To oh, the you game. didn't. You didn't have a distribution contract or anything at that point. We had a little bit of a deal. But, but there, were no, there was no distribution. You know, we had a personal deal. Uh-huh. But uh, we had signed no network things. It was all speculating. Oh, all really? All on yeah. spec. Oh, all on nice. spec. But I thought, worst case scenario, I, I'm getting a vacation to India. Right. It would be a, a hoot. For him, want... of course, he took a little bit of a gamble because right. nine out of ten actors in L.A. are going to lie and say whatever they got to say to do the job. Right. So very good chance I could have arrived in India and wanted my girlfriend or my mommy right. two weeks in. India is an intense place. Yeah. If you're not a seasoned traveler yeah. and you go there You'd for three months. You'd been there before? Ten, I'd never been. Oh, you'd never been? No. So you did lie, you fucker. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've been to Nepal and such. Yeah. And well, so. Nepal's close. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah Nepal's <laughs> close. So where, where'd you go in India? Where? The first episode was in Orissa. We did Rath Yatra. Huh. Uh, these giant fucking chariots going down the street. Millions of people and Allegedly, if you get your hands on the ropes of these chariots, it'll wash away all your sins. It's like uh, running with the bulls in Pamplona or something. Sort of like that. Yeah, in the, yeah. In, in the old days, people would get crushed by the wheels of these chariots, and it was an honor to get crushed by them. <laughs> and this, uh, yeah. this god Juggernaut is, is intriguing. When you see him in the, in the chariot, he looks like a South Park character. He's just this little wooden carved stump with two big eyes and like a slit mouth. <laughs> and since That's then, the... Uh, People talk about the, what is it called, the, the Hinduization, I want to say, of, of India, where 
all regional gods are being incorporated into the main one. So yeah. you'll hear Indians saying, well, this regional god is really a form of Vishnu or right. Krishna. But there's no way. They'll say that about Jagannath, that he's really Shiva or something like that. But you look at the Hindu gods, they're elaborately portrayed you know, with fine detail. But this thing is just a block of wood, two big eyes, and a slit. So it's mm. definitely a tribal thing. So right. Something washed up on a beach at one point started to get worshipped and then it evolved from there. <laughs> if I ever wash up on a beach, I hope it ends with me being worshipped. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that sounds like a good movie premise. <laughs> Worship <laughs> me. It's like the gods must be crazy kind of thing. Right. So, uh, okay, so where else do you go in India? So we went from there. Uh, we did an episode in Calcutta where I wrestled these guys in mud pits. Uh, Kushti wrestling. We went out to... Um, we went out to Goa, and here's an example of an unproduced episode. We went to Goa thinking, surely, you hear people talk about Goa, surely there's something to film there. So we flew out, but it was rainy season. Everything was shuttered. Oh, Rain was coming down. Yeah. There was a zip. We literally got one stand-up where I stood on the beach and said, I'm not getting anything here. It's fucking raining. Yeah, it's raining. Uh, and then we rented a car and drove up into Karnataka, and little by little, this thing just came together. We, we stopped for a coffee at a place, and I told the proprietor, I was like, this is a damn good cup of coffee. He said, hey, my plantation is just down the way. Do you want to see it? So we go there, and then we pass by a place where there were a bunch of Tibetan uh, refugees. Uh, we looked mm -hmm. at their place, and then we, we ended up in um, Hampi, and uh, there are these, these fake sadhus on a hilltop, and uh, I say something to the guy beside us uh, about, hey, look at those sadhus, and he's like, oh, they're not sadhus, they're just actors. I said, actors, huh? Well, we can work with this. So I go up to the guys and, and say, hey, look, you're going to do a little routine. Uh, well, they, they have this thing where they put a little ball in their hand. I'm not sure. It looks like a little turd ball. And then they do a little abracadabra and they open their hand back up. There's a statuette of a little god. So I said, look, when you open up your hand, show me a very obscure god. And then the rest of this episode is going to be my attempt to find what it, where this god is, what you're trying to direct me to. So they did their little thing. They opened up their hand and there's a... Uh, uh, Nandi, the bull. So I was like, okay, my mission is to find Nandi. And I say, where is it? And they, they point in all directions. And uh, so, okay. And then we just putz around Hampi having misadventures looking for Nandi. Aren't there like ruins in Hampi? Is uh, that the place? Yeah, there's ruins in Hampi. There's actually one of our failed attempts, and this was completely genuine. We're, we're hiking up this hill. We knew there was a temple up there. We didn't know what it was. Uh, and it ends up being the monkey temple. Uh, where Hanuman was apparently born, or mm. where he came from. Right. And as I'm doing a stand-up up there saying, hey, hey, this is uh, the monkey kingdom, a monkey runs right behind me on his hind legs with his hands in the air like he's uh, <laughs> some evangelical touched by the Holy Ghost, completely photobombs me and ruins the stand-up. Really? Ruins it? Well, you know, it looked like a ruin, but let's just keep it uh, yeah, and it's do great. some voiceover and, and acknowledge it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. Yeah, I got attacked by a monkey in, uh, in Malaysia. Monkeys are dangerous, man. Yeah, you don't fuck with those Asian monkeys. They, they got self-respect. They're not like American monkeys in a cage. Right. Pathetic, sad monkeys. Now those fuckers will... Don't, you don't look in their eyes. That's the thing. That's it. Yeah, don't look in the fucking monkey's eyes. They have the same anatomy as we have. So they say when you fight a monkey, which I've never done, but there's no gentleman rules. It's not like, okay, I knocked you to the pavement, the fight's over. They're going to go right for your eyes, your throat, or your genitals. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, they're not to be fucked with. Yeah, I won the fight though. Did you? Yeah, yeah. It's I, I actually tell the You're story. Like, Here's a tool, motherfucker. <laughs> Clonk. <laughs> no, I wish I'd had a tool. Then the fucking thing never would have attacked us. Yeah. Um, but anyway, that's the story. I, I, t- I actually tell that story in Sex at Dawn in the preface. I don't remember how I justified it, but there was some connection I made up to the... Because my girlfriend had this bag of peanuts, and I don't know. It was something about how humans are monkeys. What happened was, the I mean, it's a long story, but the monkey comes at us because my girlfriend had this bag of peanuts that these guys had sold us, and the cellophane made all this noise. Uh. And the fucking monkey's coming at us, and I, like, turned into a big monkey. Like, I was just, like, like hopping around and... <laughs> making all this noise and and the monkey's like whoa whoa what's the fuck what's up with this you it know? worked oh it worked yeah the monkey stopped and backed up and and it, I wasn't doing it on purpose I'd lost my shit because she'd already been attacked and so I was like going through all this macho you were like let's shit. do it yeah I was like next fucking monkey that comes near my <laughs> girlfriend is getting a piece of this <laughs> so, yeah unwise but it paid off it paid off, you know. You gotta like your bluff because you were you sincere. Bluff. You were so sincere. I, I, the monkey probably it was thought method there's, acting, something, there's man. something to this guy. Yeah, I He's was got an ace in the hole. I was, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I bluffed that fucking monkey. Uh, did you get to Rajasthan at all when you were in India? I did. Yeah, Rajasthan was really interesting. I like Rajasthan a lot. We uh, Rajasthan, I found a good example of just how fertile India is to spirituality. Uh, we're riding in a, uh, a taxi, and you know how a lot of them will have a mini shrine up in front. And yeah. You've got Ganesh or Shiva. So we're riding in this taxi, and this guy has this little shrine thing, but in the picture, it looks like a good-looking 30-some-year-old guy, like a like an Indian Tom Selleck, Magnum <laughs> P.I. days. Yeah, big his, old mustache. Shrine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I said, hey, is that your son? He's a strapping young man. He's like, no, no, that's, that's Ombana. And then it took me a while to understand, but eventually... I get the story that this, this, this studly dude who was, you know, popular amongst the circles because he was so alpha, was riding his motorcycle home late one night, one of those, uh, those bullets. Um, oh, yeah, the it, Enfields. Yeah, Royal yeah. Enfield bullet. He was probably hammered, and he plows into a tree at full speed, dies on the spot. So as the legend goes, now here it starts sliding into mythology. The cops come, they clear up the scene, and they take the bike, and they bring it back to the station. In the morning, the bike's gone. They look for it all over. It's back by the tree where this guy died, where it last saw its master. So they bring it back again, and again it comes back. They bring it back a third time. Uh-huh. They tie it down with gigantic chains, uh-huh. and in the morning, the chains are burst, and the bike is back there. So now, I think 30 years later, a brief moment in time, there's a big shrine to the guy, and there's a big shrine to the motorcycles beside him. And the motorcycle's there, and people come, give offerings. They line up. Uh, when people drive by on the street, you're supposed to give a little toot of your horn. They say if you don't toot, don't show respect, you might crack your windshield or something. So just in this short period of time, yeah. this guy goes from, you know, the local town stud to being a deity. He and washed I, up I, on the beach. He washed up on the beach. <laughs> As we were leaving Rajasthan, I was flirting with the ticket agent and, you know, telling her, hey, yeah, I do this and that. You know? And I told her, yeah, yeah, we covered Ombani. She's like, oh, my God, I love Ombani. He's my favorite. You know, like uh, somebody mentioning they like Major Lazer or, or the Beatles back in the day or yeah, something, you know. Yeah, 
It's just uh, it's just that fertile to spirituality. But that's one of the great culture. things about about India. Is yeah, it's so content rich. Around every corner, there's an interesting character or an interesting belief. Colors, smells, shapes, yeah, movement. Yeah, it's overwhelming because, as you said, if you haven't been there and you haven't traveled much, India is. Uh, it's advanced level shit. Yeah. The first time I went there was in uh, 1987, probably. And, <clears throat> man, it's changed a lot. You know, every place has changed a lot. But in those days, India was aligned with the Soviet Union. So there were, there were no Western companies in the country. There's no Coke. There's no Sprite. There's no Volkswagens, no Nissan. It was all, there was one car, one motorcycle, and they were all the same. The Royal Enfield, it's the only motorcycle in the country. Mm-hmm. They had one car, which was the Ambassador. Right. And every car was the Ambassador. There's nothing else. There are no Cadillacs, no Toyotas, and uh, no McDonald's, no KFC, none of that shit. And it was interesting. And, of course, no Internet. So, you know, like, I had this little shortwave radio, and then I would, like... I remember I was in Kashmir up in Srinagar and I was like listening with my shortwave radio to the BBC and like, just because it was in English, you know? It's, it's crazy. Srinagar. Yeah, I was mentioning the brushes with death. Probably my number one was in Srinagar. We were coming from Leh. Uh, we felt like we didn't have enough content and I'd read some book that I found in a, in a hotel in Leh that talked about this tomb in Srinagar where a man named Yusuf is buried. Uh, he's a guy who died around 18 AD. He came from the West, uh, so he was a foreigner. He was known as a guru. He was a teacher. Oh, Jesus. The, he, the whole Jesus thing. Yeah, yeah. you got it. Yeah, yeah you got it. Jesus in Kashmir, I remember yeah. that. Yeah. So uh, we head to this area. I mean, Jesus, this tomb, this is, we got to cover that, right? Because right, nobody says what happened, like, uh, what happened to Jesus after he came back to life at Easter. Right, right. You know, like, where did he go then? Apparently, the story is that he he and Mary walked to to India, right? Wasn't he with Mary? He probably was with Mary, right. I mean, the, the, the popular theory is that, and again, who knows? I mean, this is, this is such a hot potato <laughs> subject. Yeah, yeah, so this is all speculation. <laughs> but uh, the should theory, go without saying, yeah, right? The, the, yeah, the, the, the theory is that he was resuscitated from clinical death. Right. And as, as happens hundreds of times in the, in the States every year, and everybody that it happens to thinks it's a genuine miracle, sincerely, because your brain puts on a crazy show when it, when it shuts down. So he would have thought it was a miracle. His followers would have thought it was a miracle, 100% sincere across the board. But, look, the Romans back then did not funk around. Like, if he pranced around town the next day, they would kill him for sure and make, cut them up into little pieces. Yeah. Like, they did not mince around with that stuff. So they would have known, okay, we've got to get out of here. <laughs> so where would you go if you, yeah. if you went to the West? It's the entire Roman Empire. Yeah. But you could take the spice route or the silk route uh-huh. to a country of religious tolerance, which is India. So we get to this, this alleged site of Jesus' burial, and now it's in a really separatist neighborhood. Uh, you know, they, they don't want to be part of India and they're causing as much trouble as possible to cajole India into letting them go. 
And uh, we get out of the car, and these, this group of guys surrounds us almost instantly. And what are you doing here? Da, 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 da. And I'm like, oh, yeah, 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 we're just going to walk down the street. And I tell the cameraman, start rolling. And I start walking and talking as he's following me. And then they, these guys run up on us. More of their buddies come. And suddenly we've got, like, 15 guys around us, and they are hot under the collar. And it really feels like we're going to get lynched. Yeah, uh, and again, there's no police here. There's no military here. It's one of these off the grid kind of spots. Right. And our rickshaw driver <clears throat> comes to bat, and you know, you, you can see him saying like, "Oh, yeah, yeah, you be a good Muslim, remember?" Uh, you know, and he's he's trying to calm them down. And, and meanwhile, he looks over his shoulder and he says, "Get in the get in the rickshaw, get in the rickshaw." And so uh, we slip into the rickshaw. He jumps in and speeds us off. And it felt like a real tense moment. Yeah. So uh, we go to a, a, an adjacent mosque that's way up this hill that has a similar color scheme to fill in the blanks. <laughs> and the guys there actually uh, ended up being really cool, which, oh. you know, restored my faith in the community because uh, they saw us putzing around, carefully prancing around the edges of the mosque, and a couple of guys were like, what are you doing? And I said, well, look, I don't want to offend you, but there's this story of Yusuf Seth. Who knows if it's true? We just want to mention it. And they're like, yeah, 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 no problem. So... They kind of helped us out. Mm. And then I was like, okay, we got it. We went to leave, but our, uh, our producer was hell-bent. He's like, you know, I don't, I don't think we got a clean shot of the thing. He's, uh, he was born in India, so he looks Indian. He's like, look, I'll go up with a secret camera, and I'll just get one shot of it, and then we'll go on the way to the airport. I was like, dude, you don't have to do that. It's not a good idea. But he was, I think he took it as a pride thing, like, mm. I should be able to see this. I'm, I'm Indian, you know, right. so... The cabbie won't even come into the neighborhood this time. This, this cab driver can just feel it. He's driving towards it. He stops four blocks away. He's like, I'm not going in there. Uh, so the guy goes out by himself with the Sashi Day, the producer of the show, goes out with a, a secret camera and walks out there. And I'm looking at my watch. 15 minutes goes by. 30 minutes go by. Now I'm in a dilemma. Like, like what do I do? looking for him? So yeah. go, if he's being lynched, I'm going to get lynched. Yeah. But, you know, do you leave, leave your buddy hanging? What do you do? And finally he comes back ends my moral dilemma. He's shaking like a leaf. He got surrounded again and threatened. Luckily, they didn't see the secret camera because that would have been hasta la vista for him. Uh, but he got it on camera. He got the thing and he got the threats. So in the end... Oh, you got all the drama. We, we yeah. got all the drama, you know? Wow. So the, the, the show aired on a history in India probably about a year later, and, and I'd like to think that somewhere... There was this group of thugs, you know, up in a tea shop, feeling good about themselves, how they scared away the camera crew, and then a little boy runs up the steps and says, You're Ahmed, on TV. You're on TV at Grandma's house. And he runs up there, and then he knows we got him. Yeah, yeah. You were filmed being an asshole. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, that's a tough part of the world, Kashmir. It is. You know, the whole reason Kashmir is part of India is that, do you know the story? I do, but go ahead and recount it. It's well, an interesting story. If, if I remember it correctly, at the time of the separation, the Maharaja's son was in Monaco, I think, and he had lost a lot of money in the casino. And the British told the Maharaja they would pay off the son's gambling debt if he signed the papers to make Kashmir part of the Hindu state rather than the, the you know, Pakistani. Interesting. I, I actually didn't know that aspect. I just knew that uh, the area was so heavily Muslim that Pakistan was sure it was going to swing for Pakistan. So they already had their army in there, and they were just, you know, 
preparing for the transition, and then at the last minute they're like, no, we're going with uh, India. Yeah, well, that's why they went, because the, the son's gambling debt. Yeah. Fucking wow. stupid bullshit, the way history works. Yeah. So you're in your fourth season. Fourth season. How long do you guys shoot? Is it like a three-month shooting period, and then you chill for a while? Well, every, every season's been different, actually. The first one was eight episodes, and because it was in India, they just popped out like... Uh, yeah, Catholic babies, you know, bam, bam, bam. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Catholic babies. Uh, the second one we did twelve. The third one we got really ambitious and pushed out seventeen. That was a, wow. a little too much. So we're 17. we're simmering back down to, right. to ten or twelve this season. Uh, and we've got we got Finland and Ireland in the bank, and it looks like uh, Russia's next. Russia, that's going to be rough. You can get fucked up in Russia. Yeah, I've heard. I've heard that, you know, when we were in Finland, I talked to some Russian girl in the park. She said, be very careful. But who knows? You know, sometimes the reality is much different than how it is. We have actually a very large Russian fan base. Oh, really? The only times I've been recognized overseas is in India and then twice by Russians. Once when we were filming in Cambodia and another time the air stewardess. And I was looking my worst, too, on this plane. I had on just jumped in the sea in LA before I got on the flight so I had all my shorts were kind of drying out but I got cold so I went on a jacket and a hat and I had one of those masks to cover your face and earplugs in yeah yeah you fucking fashion models man and then the, the, the stewardess comes up it's like you're the travel show guy yeah. right can I take a picture I was like oh man <laughs> but it's flattering yeah. it's nice to it's nice to be recognized yeah. I suppose if you're at like Brad Pitt Leo DiCaprio level, it's the joy is lost. Yeah. You know, the joy of being recognized when you're, you know, ten times during your dinner you're being approached. But when it's once in a blue moon, it's flattering. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, Russia to... seems like a fascinating place. I've always wanted to travel there. Are you going to Novosibirsk? That's the big shamanism area in Siberia. It's... I'm very curious about that. Yeah. Yeah, I've been. I, I have a friend who's sort of a world-renowned uh, expert on shamanism and altered states of consciousness. <clears throat> His name's Stanley Krippner. He's been on this podcast a few times, and he uh, he always invites me to go with him to Novosibirsk. He goes there once a year for a shamanism conference, and apparently there are all t- lots of funky people up there. But I've never made it. That's where the word shaman comes from, right? Uh, possibly. I don't know. Is it a Russian word? I've heard it comes from that region, but I can't speak with authority on that. Yeah, I don't know where the word comes from. Uh, I don't know what the roots of the word are, but certainly Siberian shamanism is one of the uh, sort of roots. You know, there's a very uh, established tradition of shamanism in that part of the world. Right, right. But yeah, I mean, I I went to a shamanism conference with him in uh, Bavaria one time in this... uh, what was it called? It was, it was this little ski village in the Bavarian Alps with, with, a, with a hyphen in the middle. Something, I can't remember, German people will know what I'm talking about. But anyway, it was this beautiful little alpine village and shaman from all over the world had come there for this conference. So you're in this alpine German village with these guys with the, like, the lederhosen and the hats with the little feather and yeah. all that stuff. And then you got these shaman, these dudes walking around with bones through their noses and big feather headdresses from New Zealand or the Amazon and everything. What a bizarre juxtaposition. Yeah. You know, what do they talk about at a shaman conference? 
Um, you know, they were talk- there were presentations about uh, differing shamanic traditions, about uh, the sort of health practices and healing uh, techniques that were used, um, you know, dream stuff. Uh, there was stuff about uh, telepathy and, you know, sort of uh, out-of-body experiences and all sorts of funky shit. There's one of those, one of many situations I've been in over the years where I wished I had a camera crew and, you know, somebody, because it, it was just so unique and bizarre right. and interesting. Now, did but, they have workshops where you could participate in, in uh, oh, guided yeah. rituals and such? Yeah, they've got guys with drums and, you know, the drumming workshops and mandala drawing stuff and sand paintings and, you know, whatever. And they're all different, but uh, that one, that one was interesting. Although my, my most salient memory from that was the beautiful Swedish girl that I hooked up with and her very creaky bed. <laughs> she, she had the creakiest bed I've ever been on, I swear. It was like the bed was designed to stop anything from happening. You don't like a little creak in the bed? It doesn't make well, you it was like in you're, this, you're doing something there? It, way too much creak, and it was like in this guest house she was staying in with this old German lady, so it was it, it wasn't a comfortable situation. Yeah. Now, you talk about this in your book, you know, how, how females will vocalize sex. Oh, yeah, female copulatory vocalization, yeah. Right. Do you find as a man, on the <laughs> other hand, that you have the complete opposite feeling, like I'm making too much noise, people are going to hear this? Well, it depends where I am, you know. I don't tend to make a lot of noise. Do you is that, think is that what you're asking well, me? You're asking I'm me asking, if I'm a loud fuck? A... Is that what we're doing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, let's make it a two-part question. <laughs> a, are you a loud fuck? And B, is there something inherent in men that, that we want to keep the act silent oh, so, so as not to attract other, other dudes? Right. Yeah, that, You know, that could be. I don't know. I've... I've thought about that, actually. Um, And I've also noticed that uh, a lot of men... Well, how can I say this? That there's a tendency to hold your breath when you're coming. That it makes the orgasm more intense. Right. And uh, autoerotic asphyxiation, as we know, is a big deal among some men, right? That's what so there does seem David Carradine. Right, yeah. So there does seem to be, um, <clears throat> you know, I don't know whether it's a psychological thing, but there does seem to be some sort of innate tendency to not only not make noise, but to even stop breathing, Interesting. you know, uh, associated with orgasm at least. But, you know, that's not that's the kind of thing that hasn't been studied, I'm sure. Right. You know, that's this, just this thought's conjecture. crossed my mind. Because I'm, I'm a fairly unabashed dude, but I, if I am in a situation with a girl with an extremely creaky bed or a woman who's extremely loud yeah. in a confined space where you know there's a lot of other rooms, you start thinking, oh, you know, I hope I don't get in a situation here where I'm, I'm going to have to leap up, <laughs> erect, and deal with some kind of a hostile situation. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I don't... I don't like it when women are too loud, but I don't like anything being too loud. I'm always bitching about the neighbors and the street yeah. noise and all that. You become that guy. I've been, yeah, get off my lawn, you <laughs> fucking kids. Yeah, no. Turn down that racket. <laughs> no, I I find uh, silence to be a a very underrated luxury. You know, we were in Joshua Tree yesterday, actually, Casilda and I, and we took a little walk and we stopped and we just 
sat there and it was absolutely 100% silent. And it's like, when's the last time I heard that? Right. Like months ago, if not right. years, you know? I remember going into a cave in France to see some prehistoric art and halfway back into the cave, the guide said, all right, everybody just stop, turn off your lights and let's just stand here for a minute. It was fucking extraordinary, you know? Absolute darkness, absolute silence. Fantastic. Wow. You ever do floating, uh, sensory deprivation tanks and all that? No, but I'd love to try it. Have you done it? Oh, I do it a lot, yeah. Yeah, I do it a lot in Portland. It's wonderful. I've heard you can start to hallucinate in those things. Well, you know, hallucinate. You know, see what's going on in your head is just another name for hallucinate. You know, I've, I've always felt like hallucinations, you know, flashbacks, all this sort of scare talk about, you know, what can happen if you take hallucinogens or whatever. Right. Uh, you know, halluc- there's shit going on in your head all the time, you know? That, like, my wife's a psychiatrist, and, and uh, you know, she always tells her patients, uh, don't worry about the voices. You're not going to get rid of the voices. We all have voices in our heads. The difference is, you know, so-called healthy people are just capable of ignoring them. So right. don't think that the difference between you and everyone else is that you've got voices and they don't. They have voices too, telling them that they're no good and they're never going to succeed and they're ugly and you know all that shit that the voices say. Right. The difference is you're paying attention too much. Right, you know. Right, so right. what we need to do is help you learn to ignore that shit. It's never going to go away. Don't even think of it that way. I think that's a really smart way to approach it, but it's very unusual for psychiatrists. By the way, speaking of voices, you know, there's research showing that people from different cultures, schizophrenics from different cultures, the voices say different things that are typical to that culture. So in America, the voices often tell people to kill themselves and, you know, you're, you're no good and they're like ego attacking, right? Right, right. Um, in India, they'll say things like, you should clean the house. They'll, they'll, they'll give them chores, you know? So they're much friendlier, you know? So they're, you know, clinically, you would say they're both schizophrenics, but in India, they're just saying, you know, clean the house. Why do you think our voices are so much more grave? Because I think our culture is much more aggressive, much more uh, violent, and so the sort of subconscious of Americans is often saying, kill something, you know? Interesting. It's, yeah. I mean, you watch, watch movies in India, you know? What are they about? They're, they're about dancing in the rain, primarily, from what I can tell. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah, Here it's yeah, all about shooting somebody. Right, you know? it's right. Kill and justice and revenge and ah, shit. I don't know. But again, that's, that's just conjecture. So getting back to you, uh, we... <laughs> You can tell how professional this is, huh? <laughs> no. This is a real professional show we got here. I love it. Uh, how long are you going to do this? Is this something you want to do? You want to be like with a cane? You want to be with your walker? I'll be like Harrison like... Ford in the last uh, Indiana Jones. <laughs> Harrison Ford. Poor Harrison Ford. He crashed his fucking plane hey, last he I heard about him on a golf course yeah, or something. Yeah, man, and he walked away from it. What a stud. Guy's in his 70s. He walks away from a plane crash. That's pretty Apparently cool. And we just slightly bruised up. Yeah. Yeah, who knows, man? I'll, I'll uh, you know, ride this wave. As, I'll ride as this long wave as, as long as I can Good. because it's a, it's a great wave, and then you know, hopefully, slide into some other projects and and uh, you know, just stay true to my passions and see where that leads me. 
So you're based in L.A.? Based in L.A. So you have a place here, and then you go off and do your... Do you do, like, the shooting all at once for the season, or do you maybe do several... We break it up into chunks, like uh, maybe three episodes in a row. It's uh, the I, I really love L.A. I know there's a lot of negative opinions about this city, and I had one myself before I moved here uh, because I was in San Francisco for a while, and mm. you know, a lot of people bad talk L.A. up there. Um, but I, I think people ask me all the time, if you could live anywhere, where would you live? And I say, I probably could live anywhere, and, and I, I love it here in L.A. You get mm. the beach, you get you get mountains, there's a lot more wilderness than people realize. Yeah, There are some areas that are unattractive, for sure. And if I guess if you visited and you were plunked down in your buddy's house in one of those neighborhoods and that's all you saw, you'd, you'd have a bad feeling about it. Right. But uh, I think it's a great city. So I'm always happy to come back home, especially here in Venice Beach. You see all the characters, you can jump yeah. in the sea. And I'm happy to go abroad as well. Yeah. you got to mix it up. Well, you know, home is... Is uh, it's such a nice place when you're away for several months every year. Absolutely. You know, like having home as a home base is really different from having home as a place you never leave. Right. Yeah. And especially this city, and especially if you're born in this city. Uh, I met this girl in a bar probably about six months ago who happened to be born and raised and spent almost all her time in a small part of Beverly Hills, the most affluent part of Beverly Hills. And I said to her, honestly, trying not to be condescending, you know, you're fascinating. You're sort of like somebody who is in one of those little tribes in the Amazon jungle. Yeah. In the sense that that person running around the Amazon jungle in this little isolated tribe imagines the whole world is like that when it's (laughs) completely different. Yeah. And the same thing, you know, her world of whatever, you know, BMWs and bougie shops, not, not making any judgment call, it is what it is. She maybe is no more or less happy than I am, but uh, that is not representative of the world at large at all, but she might think it is. Yeah. Um, so, especially if you're born in LA, it's only, it could be like being born in Disneyland. You've gotta get out if you wanna become a well-rounded person. Yeah, yeah, and and I think the difference between L.A. and a lot of other places is if you're born in, you know, where are you from, Peoria? Yeah. Which is sort of the, you know, typical, like, small-town America kind of, you know. Yeah. Um, you know you're from a small town. Right. You, you know the world is a bigger place. And you want to get out. Right. But if you're from L.A., I mean, I've got a bunch of cousins here, and I see their kids, and they're nice kids. They're They're beautiful kids, but... There's a smug L.A. self-satisfaction, like, that they, like you said, they don't know they're in a tribe. They don't know how isolated they are and how atypical they are. Right. And they just sort of assume they're better because, you know, they hang out with, uh, you know, some movie star's kid and, you know, everybody's rich and uh, and they've all got maids and they all got pools and they all got all their shit and their lives are the ones that you see on TV. Right, right. So they think they're in the heart. They think they're, you know, they're, they're reality because that's what's being shown on the media. Exactly. 
And I, you know, I, I try not to be the asshole uncle, but I try to get them to see sometimes like, no, you, your life isn't reality because it's what's being shown on the media. Because <laughs> the media is all bullshit, man. Right, and it seeps into your reality, you know? Like, it's fucking weird. Yeah. But, yeah, I've got, like, one of my cousins is a big lifeguard. He's like a head lifeguard in Malibu. And his stepfather was, like, I think the chief lifeguard of the whole thing. And they used to film uh, Baywatch uh, on the beach there. And, like, they knew, like, one of them was the, you know, the lifeguard consultant or something for Baywatch and all that shit, you know? So they're, like, living Baywatch. Right. What a bunch of bullshit that was. (laughs) Jesus Christ. Yeah, I think if you take a hard look here, though, you can see that whole paradigm of... uh you know, that whole paradigm of wanting to rise to the top keeps our whole economy moving. But moving in the wrong fucking direction. Yeah, but don't, you don't listen get me to, started. Uh, you heard those Mel Gibson tapes, right? The ones he, he unwisely <laughs> left on his uh, ex-wife <laughs> the answering machine. machine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. Talk about bad calls. She's Russian. Wasn't she Russian? Yeah, she was Eastern European. You yeah, may be right. Yeah, be watch Russian. out for the Russians. But, uh... You could just hear in his voice how unhappy and lonely and sad yeah, he was. I think yeah. at one point he said, I don't have any friends. You're my only friend. Yeah. And here's a guy, you know, his Oscars, great-looking dude, yeah. great career. Whatever he wants. Whatever right he there. wants. But then again, like, who, who do you hang out with when you're Mel Gibson? Who's your contemporary? Who's your peer? Yeah. Brad Pitt? Well, you can't just, like, go next door and knock on his door and say hey you want to crack let's crack a couple of beers and talk things yeah. over now you, you know he's off doing his own movies and whatnot so yeah. being part of a community is what makes you happy not oh, yeah. rising to the top and sequestering yourself from community that's exactly that i mean there's a whole chapter about that in this book i'm writing right now you know this how what's civilization what it tells you is going to make you happy isn't what actually demonstrably makes anyone happy. It leads you away from the things that make you happy. Because the thing we do when we get some money is we buy comfort. And comfort is uh, isolation from other people. So you start staying in better hotels where the windows don't open Right. And you're not going to like run into anybody you don't want to run into. And so what do you end? You end up lonely. Exactly. Right? Instead of the fucking chaotic, noisy guest house that you stay in when you're, you don't have a lot of money, when you're a backpacker. And that's where you meet cool people and you hear great stuff and you have a great time because you just met someone who Go came from that island. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I mean, that's what it's all about, right? Right. So the money actually fucks up your trip. This is true. I remember when it was my birthday. I was in... Uh, I was in Cancun, this is like a long time ago, and uh, it was my birthday, and I'd I'd been traveling in in Chiapas and Oaxaca and southern Mexico for a while, and I decided, it's my fucking birthday, I'm going to get a nice room, air-conditioned swimming pool, the whole works, you know? And I went to this hotel and got a room for 70 bucks or something, and... It was fucking horrible. I went up and watched CNN and jerked off and like, what the fuck, man? I went down to the pool. There are a couple fat ass, you know, salesmen and like, this. What am I doing here? This is bullshit. You Absolutely. Know? One of the best communities I saw was uh, we went to Sarawak, a Malaysia's part of Borneo, to right. cover uh, the all these dam projects. They're displacing uh, a lot of yeah, native people. Really bad. So, uh, but. 
we went to one tribe that's living in what's called a longhouse. Yeah. Have you, have you seen those? Sure, yeah. On the, on the what is it, the Rio, the, no, that's in, sorry, I'm thinking of the Amazon, Rio Napo. The thing's, the thing's um, about as far from front to back. I mean, they're big front to back like a San Francisco Victorian. Right. But then it could go a hundred, it could go a football field long from side to side, sometimes longer. Right. With a one huge back porch connecting it all. Right. And you go inside and it's, a, you know, it's all lifted off the ground and there's ladders and bridges all over the place inside. And every family kind of has their space, but it's interconnected in a unique way with all the other spaces. Well, I remember we came in with our family, we put down our stuff, chilled for a minute, and then the cameraman and I took a little walk down the, the big back patio that connects it all, and one door had a sign in English that said, welcome, come on in. So I opened up the door, and there's a dude there with his little shop, with, you know, he sells all the crackers and stuff like that, his little convenience store and the thing. I think it was after hours, and he forgot to lock the door, or maybe he never had it locked. He was a little surprised. I was like, oh, sorry, the... The door said, come in. He's like, oh, uh, yeah, come over here. My, my wife and my sister are in this back room. And he leads us back there, and they're making stuff with beads, and they break out rice wine, and we end up all getting drunk together. And just the feeling of community that you could sort of just wander around this place and, and meet the neighbors, and everybody was keen to have a chat and yeah. have you over, sit on the couch. So you, were, you had your space, but you were interconnected. Right. And I thought, this is the ideal way to live. That's it, yeah. Right now here in Venice, although I could afford to live alone, I have a couple roommates mm. who are awesome. And I like the feeling of coming home, having somebody to talk to. Yeah. And now, you meet their friends. Oh, so yeah. So your, your social world is much bigger. Oh, yeah. They're, mu- yeah. they're musicians, so I right. meet the most interesting creative people who come through. Right. Now, it has affected my dating life. You know, if you bring home a, a bohemian kind of girl, she's going to love it, but... I brought home more the the lawyer or the social climber type, and and one girl literally bolted out of my place. Fuck we, her. We were on the second date. She was swooning. Things were going great. We walked in the front door, made a couple comments as I was moving towards the bedroom, like, oh yeah, here's the this and that, you know, and this this is my room. I, this painting is from blah blah blah. And at that moment, she said, I gotta go, and she beeline for the front door and I ran her down I said whoa 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 she's like I gotta go home I was like fine that's fine you're gonna go home I'm gonna walk you to your car but first tell me what's wrong she's like you're gonna you're gonna hate me I was like just tell me it's fine it's this place it's so not you and you know she so not the you that I'd created in my head yeah yeah and I I never never saw that girl again good for you man (laughs) That's what I was saying earlier. Yeah. You know, eliminate those people. <laughs> right. Fuck them. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I love it. I see no reason to leave. And, and I think this longhouse idea that I saw in Sarawak is great. I figure someday if I, if I do come to a point where uh, I want to upgrade and maybe have children, maybe get in a serious uh, relationship, I'd love to be in a setup like that where you've got your own space, but yeah. maybe you have to share a gigantic living room and a gigantic kitchen. Dude, that's replicating our prehistoric ancestors. That's exactly what you know what I'm talking about in this book. There's a place in, um, whoa, police car cruising over the beach at high speed. <laughs> you know, if anybody's fucking out there on that beach, they're going to get run over. They've run over a couple people this year. Yeah. Um, <laughs> There's this place right near where we live in Portland. It's called Jacob's Garage. And uh, 
it's just this old, the paint is still on there from Jacob's garage. So I guess it was like an auto body shop or something like that. And, um, but now you can see, we walk past it all the time because there's this park right there and we walk past this place on the way to and from the park. And so the, there are all these doorways and each of the doorways is painted differently and there's a different number on it. And, but sometimes they leave the doors open and you can see that each of the doorways leads to an independent apartment, but in the middle is this big open common courtyard with a kitchen and some tables and some grass and some trees. And it's like a, like a motel with the rooms around right, the courtyard. Right. So everybody's got their private space, but there's this big common open area, right? It. It's like, that's, that's the way to live. You know, you get some money together, you buy a structure like that. You, you, you know, you get a corner, I get a corner, whatever, we set it up, and then we sell the other places to people we want to live with. There you that go. we want to share our lives with. We right. form a community, right. and then as it grows, everybody gets to decide, like, do we, you know, invite these people in or not, or, you know, why not, and what's the problem? I mean, I've even thought in Spain, all, there are all these abandoned villages now. You can buy a whole fucking village for, like, half a million dollars with, like, houses and barns and shops and everything, right? right? So you buy one of these villages, and... You get like a high-speed internet access, right? So you got you can do your work, you can communicate with whomever you need to communicate with, and then you sort of populate it with, you know, you have a doctor, you have a teacher, you have someone who takes care of kids, you have people who know a lot about gardening and growing food, you have someone who knows how to deal with animals, and you just create your community there, right? You know, and then but you're like two hours from Barcelona or Madrid or whatever. You can get to an airport. You can do whatever you need to do pretty quickly. Uh, to me, that's the way to live. That's that's the future if there's going to be one. I hope it goes that way. It's a completely new paradigm, but that's the that's really the key to happiness. Well, it is a it is a new paradigm, but it's a paradigm that hasn't really been um, possible until now. I mean, the, the thing, I'm, I'm wrapping up this book right now, and I'm actually ending on a hopeful note, which is a big surprise uh, to me, because I've the book's about, you know, how civilization has been a big mistake, basically. But one of the things I'm considering, and I've, I've been thinking a lot about recently, is how the best things that have come from civilization have come from the fact that we have this concentrated brain power all together, right? right? We're exchanging ideas. And so, you know, if you and I are talking about an idea, it's going to like take off in a way that one of us just sitting around thinking it wouldn't go the same. You know, there's, there's this uh, convergent energy. Um, <clears throat> and if you got 30 people talking about it or making music or whatever, being creative, it, it, it it grows exponentially. And so that's what leads to science and great art and all this stuff. So that required until like 10 years ago, required that we live together in very uh, tight physical space. Right. But now with the internet, we don't need to be in tight physical space. We can exchange ideas as quickly or quicker than ever. We can, you know, shoot images back and forth and sound and do anything we want. And we can be on opposite sides of the world. That's fucking amazing. That's never happened before. So for the first time, we can spread out physically and live in little villages, which are the really the right way to live. It's the right way for kids to grow up. It's the right way for the earth. It's lighter on the earth. It's better in so many different ways. And yet we can still have 
that uh, sort of cumulative power of being all interlinked and connected in one you know global community. Interesting. So just now the conditions are ripe for this. New for the first time ever. Yeah, yeah. Which is you know ironic, but also sort of maybe you know there's like a, a beautiful symmetry in it that as this global consciousness is finally clicking into place it's exactly the moment when the whole fucking thing's about to sink you know the whole uh, everything's exhausted everything's about to collapse but my hope is that any consciousness the first thing any real consciousness becomes aware of is its own mortality sure so if we are forming a species-level global consciousness, the first thing it's going to be thinking about is, holy shit, I'm about to... This is all about to end because I'm doing everything wrong. Right. You know? Well, there are signs of hope. <clears throat> you know, you sound yeah. a little pessimistic about the future. Dude, this is as hopeful as I've been in, like, 10 years. Yeah. All right? This is, this is me being hopeful here. <laughs> <laughs> you think... You think that's pessimistic? Holy shit. I mean, I was sitting on a oh. plane recently with a guy who's in solar, and he said if it wasn't for, you know, all the special interests yeah. funding coal, solar, there's been a tipping point yeah. now that more money now is going into alternative energy. Right. And so you could see at some point soon uh, fossil fuels losing ground. Oh, they already are. There, yeah. there hasn't been a new coal-fired power plant approved in the United States in the last five years. They're, I mean, they had some that were already approved that have come online, but no new approvals. Nobody's even applying for approval because of what you said, that the solar and wind now are actually cheaper right. uh, for the investors. So, yeah, I've got a friend who's um, a wonderful guy who has made a fortune installing, well, not installing, setting up wind power deals. It's great. He's yeah. got this huge yacht. He lives on his yacht and floats around the world on this yacht and we go out and hang with him sometimes and and uh you know it's great because there's no crime behind his fortune <laughs> you know yeah. he's like it's like you one of these guilty about it yeah it's like a russian like oligarch style yacht you know but right. there's no like nasty asshole driving it it's, <laughs> it's this really sweet guy so anyway um what the fuck, man? I feel like we could end there, but I, I but I want to hear more travel stories. I've got and and the batteries. I was just checking the batteries. We're doing okay on batteries. So tell us another travel story. I mean, you're. I'm usually the guy telling travel stories. So I love to hear them. <laughs> well, I'll tell you since you wrote. Hey, a, have you, sorry to interrupt. Have you ever heard of Tribe? A show called Tribe with Bruce Perry. No. Oh, dude, you got to check this out. It's it was a BBC show. I think. I think he did maybe three seasons. He was a, a survival uh, expert, taught the military survival techniques, and uh, but he's not like a macho dude. He's he's like pretty small, friendly, funny guy, and he goes and lives with hunter-gatherer tribes, like real remote, primitive, and he hikes back with one cameraman, and they spend a month there. Wow. And they eat what the people eat, and they participate in rituals, and they do all stuff. It's a wonderful show. He's like a real good traveler. You know what I mean? Right, he's right. always laughing and friendly, and he's covered with bug bites, and, you know, he's... You, it's the he, real deal. He's the real deal, and but he's just like, 
one of these guys who just really knows how to travel and make he makes people comfortable. Really check it out. It, it, I mean, it could give you some good ideas for your own show. Absolutely. Anyway, so you were about to tell me a story. You said something about since I've written. Oh yeah, a book about sexuality. I'll uh, tell you a, a good uh, sex story that's sort of a non-sex story. Oh, all right. We we finished filming in Amsterdam. Uh, we we took a boat down to Morocco to to end this episode. One of those huge cargo ships. Uh, and I, I was so smitten with Amsterdam that I came back on my own dime, bought a bike, uh, was riding, you know, got a rental, just riding around, and I was too miserly to get a, a phone chip for my phone, so what I'd do to navigate is I just, while I was an internet signal, I'd open up the map of the city, and then, as you know, you can kind of follow yourself along as long as you keep that map application open. Hmm. You can see the little dot from the satellite moving and you know where you are in the city. So every now and then you can stop your bike and if you're lost, figure out where you are. Hmm. So there was one particular Sunday where I wanted to go check out a club and it was the only show in town. So I thought, okay, I'm not going to bring my phone. I'll just memorize the route from my apartment and I just go there and come back. So uh, I go down there, stay till about three o'clock. I'm riding my bike back diligently and I, I pass by these two ladies in their, their 40s and, and they say in English, as I'm riding by, they say, stop, stop, stop. Uh, so I stop the bike. Uh, they've got one bike between them, but it's not uncommon in Amsterdam for somebody to sort of ride on the back hmm. rack there, you know? So one lady says to me, uh, hey, look, my friend here needs a ride home, but I'm going in this direction. She needs to go in the direction you're pedaling. Could you give her a ride? And I said, uh, yeah, sure, with purely altruistic uh, intentions. Uh, and then as this, as this lady gets on the back of my bike, the other lady, saying goodbye, gives me a little pat on the shoulder and says, she really needs to get laid. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> so now this worm is in my head, right? And we're pedaling off. And, uh, you know, it, to be candid, it's one of those deals where I'm kind of on the cusp of a yes or a no. You know, it's not the kind of woman I would typically pursue, but it is 3 a.m. and I've been drinking, you know, and it's there, right? That, you know, it's it's on the table. We're pedaling to her house. Yeah, it's and pretty low investment. Low investment. And yeah. meanwhile, she's on the back of my bike. She's telling me her life story. She lights up a joint in the back, which listeners, uh, it's legal in Amsterdam, so it's doing nothing wrong. She passes it up to me. I take a couple tokes. We get to the place where I would turn off, and I say, okay, well, I'm up this way. And she's like, no, no, keep, keep going straight. And she leads me right, left, straight, left, right. Uh-oh. She leads me miles away from my turn. And we finally get to her house, uh, and uh, I stop the bike, and she marches me up to her door, and she opens up the door. And as she walks into the light of her apartment and begins to take off her coat and her stuff, it, it tips to a no in my mind. <laughs> Too much light. Yeah, just I was just like, you know yeah. what? No, nah, I don't want to do this. Yeah, it's not. No, nah, it's not going to happen. So uh, now I'm, you know, a few steps into her apartment. I have to extricate oh, so, myself. So now you're the the woman who's like bolting. <laughs> <laughs> You've got roommates. <laughs> you're, you're, this is so not you. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta go. So uh, you know, uh, all right. Uh, so in my mind, I'm like, okay, this is not going to happen. Let me see how I can smoothly exit. Yeah, and. Uh, she promptly gives me a good excuse. I, I, one of the reasons why I stepped inside is I had to take a leak. It was a long bike ride. I drank a lot of beer. 
So she's like, okay, welcome to my house, blah, 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 blah. She's taking off her clothes. She's like, I just have two rules in my house. Rule number one is if you use the toilet, you have to sit down. And now, number one, I think that's ridiculous. But number two, I see this as my, my uh, light at the end of the tunnel. So I say, come on, that's ridiculous. I'm not going to sit down on the toilet, take a leak. I'll just, I'm not going to splat it. She's like, no, no, you must sit down. I was like, you know what? It's cool. I'm just going to go home and take a leak there. I'm fine. You know, no, no, no. What's wrong with you? Just sit down and take a leak. I was like, no, 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 it's fine. I'm, I'll just go home. It was nice meeting you. She's, and she grabs me. She's like, what? Just sit down on the toilet. Take a leak. <laughs> Real emphatic, you know? Yeah. And I, now I'm, she's physically got me and I'm trying to yeah. kind of back up towards the door. I'm like, no, 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 it's fine. It's nice to meet you. I got and we have a little struggle right at the door. She's trying to pull me and, I, and I'm pushing away and this real awkward moment. And then finally she gives up and says, fine, and blam, slams the door in my face. <laughs> she does need to get laid. Yeah, I was just, there I am, the door slams inches from my face and I'm just, what the fuck, what a crazy evening. <laughs> and I turn around to get my bike and I'm now I'm drunk and stone and, and I have no idea where I am. So I pedal around for the next two hours, completely lost, don't have my phone with me, my crutch. And finally I see a businessman coming out of his house to go to work, the sun's rising. And he gives me directions <laughs> to get me back home. <laughs> Amsterdam. The life of a travel show. This is my most interesting sex story. That's good, which that you can tell because it involves no sex. Yeah. No sex. Yeah. That's purely clean. Yeah. Well, foreign, for sex, foreign sex. I mean, I'm sure you can't talk about that stuff. You got to keep your squeaky clean, clean reputation <laughs> intact here. But uh, I find foreign, you know, foreign sexual encounters to be really interesting because, I mean, for me, sex and travel are very similar things. You know, exploration. Exploration, yeah. I mean, with a, a a woman is like a world. You know, it's it's a culture. There's smells and f- movements and sounds, and there's so much involved in the being intimate with someone. Yeah, it's wonderful. And and you know, like with travel, there are places that you know I love to visit, but wouldn't want to live there. You know. What a great analogy. I'm talking, I love it. You know what I'm saying. Um, Because part of the appeal is the exoticism sometimes, Mm. but that's also what makes it incomprehensible, you know? Right. So, um, yeah, yeah, I don't know. Where the fuck was I going with that? Travel. Oh, like, do you have... A lot of people listening to this podcast are... um, thinking about travel that they want to travel they're you know it's a dream but they don't know how to get from their job in peoria to a plane to bangkok you know right it's like incomprehensible to them to like what am i going to do just quit my job and go like and so a lot of times i get emails from people saying like what should i do you know where should i go like i've saved five thousand dollars should i go to you know finland or uh uh thailand you know like they they actually ask me things like that it's like are you fucking kidding me finland that'll last you two weeks you know thailand it could last you a year you know where where do you want to go Although but, both great places. Both great places. But well, I guess one, one piece of advice I give off the bat is don't spread yourself too thin. It's a, it's a mistake uh, I made right. as, an, as a novice traveler is, you know, I got these two weeks and I'm going to see ten countries. Right. 
but did I really get to know any of those places? Did I really get to know any of the people in those places? Right. No. Right. And so I, I don't even feel like it counts. So I'd say just go one place and go deep, meet some people, make some friends, find out, uh, you know, rent an Airbnb and mm. find the, the place in your block that makes the best sandwich and the best bar on a Tuesday night. Right. And then you're at a certain level that most travelers never get to where you feel like, okay, you're becoming familiar with this place. You're yeah. starting to feel a little bit like a local. Exactly. You're making some friends. You're seeing people around that you've seen before. And they've seen you, so they're they're more comfortable yeah. and they're more likely to chat with you or you're not just someone passing through. Exactly. I, I find, I mean, I travel, I'm a lazy traveler I, in the sense that, A, I like, I, I don't, if I got two weeks, I'm not going anywhere. It's not worth the trouble. Um, I, I like to travel for three months or more. Oh, I hear you. Certainly you know. the longer the better. Yeah. And uh, I like to go somewhere. Like when I was in India, I traveled for a month, six weeks or something, Kashmir, da, 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 my first trip to India. And then I got to Pushkar in Rajasthan. And I loved Pushkar. And I sat there for probably six weeks just in Pushkar. And then I went to Jaisalmer, went back to Pushkar. You know, and like, okay. And then I went to Nepal. That was it for my trip to India. Right. I had like four months or something in India, and that was it, you right. know. But I went back. I've gone back a bunch of times and been to different parts of the country and so on. But I, uh, for me, it's like find a place I love and then just stay there. Yeah, and go stay as there. the spirit moves. Yeah. It's good to maybe have a loose itinerary, things you'd like to see and stuff, but it's a big mistake to, to stay, stick to it doggedly. Oh, you yeah. Know? Like, yeah. once you're there, you, it's like sailing. you got to feel which way the wind blows. Yeah. And if you're in a good spot, stay there. Yeah. You know, don't move on because you've got to see this museum or that. You're never going to remember the museums or the landmarks. Yeah. Nobody cares about your picture in front of the Eiffel Tower. You can look <laughs> up a much higher quality picture online. <laughs> That's the truth, yeah. yeah. So yeah. put away your camera. Yeah. You know, if you take picture, take picture of people you've met. Right. Uh, Forget about pictures of the landmarks. Just have experiences. Yeah, that's good advice. People are taking pictures of landmarks to prove they've been there. Yeah. You know, if that's no if that's where you are, no one gives at. a fuck, man. Yeah. yeah, yeah, really. Yeah, that's true. Uh, I used to uh, travel with a, a camera. I sort of made some money selling photos to magazines for a while. And, and it really changes the way you experience. Absolutely. You know, because you're like... Mm-hmm. Yeah, this, okay, but this this isn't the right time of day. Yeah. You know, these clouds aren't right. If I could get that guy out of there. And yeah. It's like, come on. that's and, and these days, like you say, I mean, if I want that photo at sunset, I go online. It's there. Exactly. You know, or something better. No, it's, it's not a job. Exactly. I, you know, that's the problem with working with the TV is on all these things. I've got to think of the angles, the script, the story. Yeah. I just came back from, from Burning Man, however, and, and it was so nice to put the phone in the wallet away for the whole week. Ah, uh, you weren't you weren't recording it. You were just there no. privately. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So now unfortunately now apparently they have some cell phone signal there, which is a terrible idea. Yeah, I've heard but, people uh, griping about that. It would that. be a huge mistake to uh, pull out your phone or or whatnot when you're in Burning Man. You need to just experience. And I'd say that's true for travel in general. Yeah. You know, your your best memories are gonna be in the ones in your head. When you pull out a picture later the picture's nice, but you can't smell it again. You can't experience it again. You can't hear it again. You know, right. it's it's a shallow representation of that moment. So be in that moment. Really soak it in instead of being behind a camera. Yeah. Uh, you know, whatever. A quick picture here now and then is good, but, you know, soak it up. Be present. Right. 
Uh, that's good advice for anything, not just travel. Absolutely. That's that's good advice for life. I talked to a guy from uh, SpaceX once who was a he's an engineer there, and he told me that it takes as much energy and fuel to get that rocket out of our atmosphere, which on the grand scale of things is paper thin, than the rest of the way, say, to the moon. Right. Or somewhere way out there. And I thought that's a great analogy for travel. That is, Because you're right. everybody, you know, the guy sitting at his desk at Pure Illinois thinking, oh, going to Japan, wow, that's such a huge deal. What about this or that? The hardest thing for that guy to do, blasting out of the atmosphere, is basically buying the ticket, yeah. deciding you're going to do it. After that, the whole rest of the thing getting there, dealing with stuff, transportation, language, money, it's as easy as was buying the ticket. You know, the hardest part is for you just to click buy on whatever Skyscan or Kayak. Do that and the rest is cake. That's good. That's a really good way of looking at it. You're out of the, yeah. you're out of the atmosphere, there's no yeah. gravity and you're cruising. Yeah, it's just that momentum. Blast off, yeah, and momentum takes you so far when you're out there. Right. In space or, or on the road. Right. Because, I mean, what I, I, the image I often use, there's a poem I remember from college that this, this poet came to our class and read her poem. And the first line of it was, leap out into the air to begin with. You'll find wings you never knew. Love it. Yeah. You know, it's like, but you have to have that faith, right? You got to blast off. You got to jump. But if you do, then suddenly you're like, whoa, hey, what's this? I can float, you know? I can, once you're out there, things are so much easier than you think from back where you start. Absolutely. Yeah. And you're worried about your job and security. But, you know, you have this great story of being in New York, making a heap of money. And it's hard to walk away from. But you did. And now look, in New York Times bestseller, your life and you're right in your slot yeah. you're doing exactly what you're meant to be doing yeah and you don't get there i mean not not that you know i'm in the perfect place but but you don't get even close to where you want to be if you don't risk it and yeah and also i mean a lot of these people who are listening to this are young you know, you're in your you're in your twenties. Fuck it, man. Even yeah. if it goes wrong, who gives a shit? You well, know. Yeah. I mean, the truth is, there is no security. And yeah. Like Helen Keller said that that security is just a complete illusion, yeah. which is true. You know, yeah, we course, manufacture yeah. it because it helps us get through life. But right. there's no gold watch at the end of your job. You know that yours <laughs> disposable yeah. is the next guy. So just yeah. you know, develop your own passion, your own skills, and that's how you make yourself valuable. That's how you create a little security, like. Right. You know, don't uh, don't worry about sticking in that job or sticking in that scene. Everything's changing. You know, the whole yeah. world's moving around you. Uh, yeah. You got to move too. All right. I think I think that's the place to end it, man. That sounds that's good. That's fucking yeah. inspirational. <laughs> makes, makes me want to go somewhere. Let's do it. Hey, thanks thanks for doing this, man. Yeah, this is fun. I'm glad thanks we glad me. we found time for this. Absolutely. All right. I hope you enjoyed that conversation and appreciate your support for the podcast, especially those of you who do it through fundwhatyoulove.com, where you can set it up to take a buck, five bucks, ten bucks, whatever you can afford, whatever you feel motivated to throw at the podcast every month. Uh, You don't have to think about it. It's an ongoing thing. You can cancel at any time, of course. That's fundwhatyoulove.com. That's run by Danny Osman, who also does the sound engineering for the show. You can find him at emeraldcitypro.com if you have any engineering, sound engineering needs. He's great. I vouch for him, of course. He's been doing the sound engineering for this podcast for over a year now, completely voluntarily. 
he's a cool guy. So if you have any business you want to throw his way, please do. Thanks to Basin and Range for the opening music. You can find them at basinandrangeband.com. Uh, there's a Reddit tangentially speaking discussion group. If you want to talk about episodes, throw a question at me, get a conversation started at Reddit. Just do a search for tangentially speaking, all one word. And of course, thanks to Bennett at Shore Design T-Shirts, another guy who's been supporting this podcast from the very beginning when I had about 15 listeners. He was there. He's still there. And uh, I love him. Never met the guy, but I love him. And I sure as hell love his shirts. So you can get his shirts at shoredesigntshirts.com. And of course, all the shirts that are at chrisryanphd.com are made by Shore Design T-Shirts in Thailand and packaged and shipped to you by my mom, Julie. Uh, say hi to Julie if you order anything. She loves it when that happens. And of course, last but not least, thanks to Carsey Blanton for the song you're about to hear, Smoke Alarm, which reminds you to carpe fucking diem because you're going to die one day. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say Headstone. I don't want to give the end away, but we're gonna die one day. Your body is an animal, doesn't ask for much. A little music and a soft touch. Why don't you let it out to play? Your heart is in a birdcage, singing in your chest. Shut it up and give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation Running from a confrontation Wondering what we ought to say <laughs> When everyone we've ever known Is headed for a headstone It's a big deal If you wanna be free Say what you wanna feel Spend the night with me I'm gonna take you up in my arms And if we must go down We'll go singing to the smoke alarms We'll dance into the ground